Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the theater. It is easy to paint the world in rosy colors, even when fully recognizing all the problems we face as a society. Those who are fortunate enough to be raised in modern Western worlds often have just enough comforts to numb the sting of existential dread. We have our clothes, our food, our homes, and our jobs to go to, and social media to distract us from our routines. But when we bed down after a long day, exhausted, with our thoughts spinning, oftentimes we'll find ourselves reflecting on how we fit into the chaos of this reality. We'll be forced to reconcile the callous nature of a Darwinian world and a society which purports to have risen above its animalistic nature, yet merely rebrands it in suits, ties, and corporate colors. The extreme disparity of wealth, the immense greed, corruption, and influence of those in power, the working class that is under their heel, laboring long hours, doing harder jobs, often just scraping by. All the while, mental illness is a growing problem, an emergency eating many of us alive. Of course, mental illness has likely haunted us so long as there were the complexities of living in cities, where humans became disconnected from a more natural way of living. It's just only recently we've constructed the vocabulary and psychological science to admit just how common a problem it is. We've constructed these mazes for ourselves, these hells, and for all the wonderful ingenuity and advances of our modern world, it can't quite yet seem to fathom a clear way for us all to enjoy, and I mean truly enjoy, the more comfortable life we've created for ourselves. The path forward is unclear, yet we know it must be paved with compassion, words, communication. But for me, one thing is for certain. The world we live in is a kind of hell. And yet, the only reason we're aware of this fact at all is because, paradoxically, there are moments, relationships, and experiences which make it feel truly beautiful. Maybe you disagree. It's not all that bad, you might think. Maybe hell sounds too strong a word, but perhaps the story you are about to hear will bolster my claim. My name is Harlequin Grimm, and these are the stories of monsters whose voices are lost in history. And this is Mania. Amelia Elizabeth Dyer was born in 1836 into a simple but comfortable life afforded by her father, a master shoe craftsman. With three older brothers and one sister, she was the youngest of five children in the small village of Pyle Marsh, just south of Bristol. When researching this story, I myself tried to imagine what kind of childhood would push Amelia to commit the atrocities you are about to hear. For the most part, her childhood was normal, perhaps even slightly better than the majority of the working class in Victorian England. She learned to read, write, and even developed a love of literature and poetry. Yet Amelia was not destined to have ink staining her hands, rather blood. This fate becomes evident at the early age of six years old when her sister, Sarah Ann, passed away. Her sibling had been just a year younger than her, but four years later her parents, perhaps trying to honor the memory of their lost daughter, had another child and gave her the same name. But the second to Sarah Ann's life would not be any kinder. At nine years old, Amelia was reacquainted with death. Another innocent soul was snuffed out, this time after living for only several months. Amelia's childhood home would prove to be rife with tragedy, providing an ample amount of trauma and a lasting connection with themes of impermanence and nihilism, 
to influence her adult years. But what strikes me as most pivotal were the final years of her mother's life. Typhus, also known as spotted fever, is a disease characterized by prominent purple rashes and headaches. It was likely transmitted to her mother through either lice, fleas, or ticks. More brutal than simply ravaging one's body, it also deteriorates the mind. Another symptom of the disease is delirium. The death of Amelia's mother wouldn't just impart the bitterness of an irreplaceable bond being stolen, rather sear into her daughter's mind her death throes. At just 12 years old, Amelia witnessed her dying moments, characterized by thrashing, raving, an agonizing demise in the grips of pain, and more prominently, madness. Of course, mortality rates were higher in the Victorian era, especially with regards to children and those unfortunate enough to catch such diseases. Such instances were not exactly uncommon. Even still, when Amelia's father passed 11 years later, the youngest child of a family shadowed by death had to learn to make her living in the world. As a young adult, she trained to become a nurse under the midwife Ellen Dane. Though admirable, the work was difficult and provided very little financially. Seeing her difficulties, Ellen introduced Amelia into a profession so dark that it would embarrass the most vicious of professional scam artists, as this profession dealt not only with robbing, trusting minds of large sums of money, but executing human life with wild abandon. Evidently, the influence of the midwife who introduced Amelia to this dark world was a point of great inspiration, as Amelia would go on to name her daughter after her. During this time period, there was a seemingly incurable prejudice against women who conceived children out of wedlock. Such children were viewed as the manifestation of what was considered a lowly, repulsive act, perhaps even a small manifestation of evil itself. These children were thereby outcasted, neglected, starved, and tossed to the nearest solution. The fear of tarnishing one's reputation, even for those who could well afford to look after the children themselves, was too great a risk to incur. In 1834, the Poor Law Amendment Act removed financial obligation from the fathers of illegitimate children. Even just saying the word illegitimate here sounds archaic and founded on, well, Victorian principles. Indeed, a human life should never be measured by where or how it comes about. What this act did was make it even more difficult for fatherless mothers to raise their children adequately. In some cases, it was not a matter of reputation, but simply survival as they did not have the means to foster the life themselves. This facet of Victorian society, working in tandem with some in the working class who desperately needed access to a consistent income, created a practice known as baby farming. As I've just mentioned, these children would be thrown at the nearest and quickest solution. It just so happens that Amelia was one of them. Ellen Dane gutted Amelia for but a few weeks in setting up advertisements and instructing her how to make her home suitable for taking in unwanted children. Then she was off, moving on to another town. For women of high society, they could be charged as much as 5 to 80 pounds, the steeper side of that price ensuring that the entire transaction would be secretive. But for less affluent mothers, one of Amelia's services was to take the mothers in while they were still undergoing their pregnancy. She would take care for them up until the birth, where it was agreed upon that the mother would leave the child in Amelia's care. Sometimes, this process would be paid for with a flat fee. And oftentimes, though there was talk of the mother taking back the child as soon as she could afford to, for the most part, as soon as these children were left at the doorstep, or in the cradles 
of Amelia's home, they would never see their birth mothers again. For those who could afford very little, an average fee would be five pounds, the equivalent of 750 US dollars today. Was there any doubt in Amelia's mind about what she then did after taking on this business venture? Did the considerations haunt her? Considering her actions, it is genuinely difficult to say. In the beginning, she did take care of the children, for a time. What became problematic was, of course, what to do with them after they had been in her care. In the quiet towns and villages where she lived throughout her life, nothing was amiss about her home or lifestyle. After marrying William Dyer in 1872, a brewer's laborer from Bristol, she had two children of her own in her mid-thirties. During this time, her business was in full swing, though she eventually left her husband, keeping the children in her care. Her advertisements and meetings with her clients could not have been more misleading. What she offered was a caring home. After leaving her husband, she even lied that the orphans would also have a father looking after them. Instead, what awaited beyond Amelia's doorstep was a prison of neglect, abuse, and infanticide. For years, Amelia's modus operandi was starvation. It wouldn't do to let the children run about after they'd been adopted. Otherwise, Amelia would have to look after them, and what's more, this would restrict her from taking on future clients. Many mothers, to quiet their noisy children, used a patented medicine at the time containing laudanum called Godfrey's Cordial. Colloquially, it was known as Mother's Friends. The opium-based tincture would normally be used to subdue the crying of children during specific hours or events, but for Amelia, it was a reliable solution for fabricating a slow death of starvation. With their hunger screams quieted, Amelia would watch the dozing infants going more still and quiet as the hours and days rolled on. They would die not from overdosing, but from malnutrition. Too sedated to cry or even hunger for food at all, theirs was a gradual, dimming, passing into oblivion. The bodies piled up in Amelia's home. So did the letters. Mothers who would attempt to reclaim or simply maintain a correspondence with Amelia would have great difficulty finding any communication or be ignored outright. But the stigma surrounding the nature of their relationship prevented them from contacting local authorities, leaving Amelia to act with complete impunity. Indeed, her mind was bred to embrace this emphatic disinterest in human life. Tragedy shadowed her childhood. Poverty drove in the irony of its abundance. The difficulties pursued her in adulthood, and economic destitution was stoked by the flames of uncaring people who, perhaps truly did not care whether the child lived or died, so long it was not their problem. For many years, Amelia eluded the interest of the police. As soon as questions were raised regarding the children, she would abscond to another town. That is, until, in 1879, one doctor became suspicious as to the number of death certificates he had to sign off on for children under her care. After contacting local authorities, she was sentenced to six months' hard labor, not on a murder conviction, but on neglect. Up until this point, her killings were all but entirely legal, as coroners would sign off on the infant deaths by simply writing starvation or malnutrition, with very little to no investigation. But things would change. The six months of labor shattered what remained of Amelia's constitution. As she grew older and killed more frequently, she herself began abusing the substances she used against the children. Her mental instability was exacerbated by alcoholism. At one point, she attempted suicide by consuming two bottles of laudanum, but having grown a tolerance to the drug, it proved ineffective. And yet, as soon as she had finished her sentence, 
She did not rethink her life or actions. Instead, she felt called to refine her process. Over the years, she went by many aliases. She hopped from home to home, collected countless souls, and spun deceit like a second language. The blood on her hands continued to spread. Like an addiction, her propensities worsened. Having realized the folly of involving death certificates and doctors to verify, Amelia took every facet of the process into her own hands and began disposing of the bodies herself. Her favorite river was the Thames, for this reason. A limitless graveyard, undulating, expansive, consuming. For the river, she would use weights or simply bury the children in her backyard after wrapping them in linen. This ritual became habit, mundane, as nonchalant as disposing of waste. At this point in time, she settled into the southern English town of Reading, what would be her final orphanage and place of massacre. By now, the act itself became one of passion. With the doctors taken out of the picture, Amelia realized that starvation was too slow. Using spools of dressmaking fabric, she would cut off ribbons and wrap them around the infant's neck, just tight enough to slowly suffocate them. In her confessions, she recounted that she enjoyed watching the spark in their eyes fade. Their stuttering, strange movements ebb and ebb. All the while, Amelia's daughter was growing up inside the various homes they lived in. She matured around the smell, the sights, and in a place where murder was proper business etiquette, efficient, necessary, maybe even viewed as merciful. But on the 30th of March, 1896, a bargeman found a parcel floating down the Thames towards him. Using a nearby rod, he fished it from the waters and brought the package to his arms. The odor wrapping around the object was profound, and enough that it won over the bargeman's curiosity. What was left inside the parcel could not be described as human, not even the body of an infant. At this stage of decomposition, it would be unrecognizable with fragments and pieces just large enough to make the horrific reality apparent. Detective Constable Anderson took the parcel into his possession after it had been reported to the local authorities. Using a microscope, he was able to discern a label for the package, which contained the barely legible name Mrs. Thomas and a corresponding address. For weeks, the police set up surveillance around the home. With their suspicions piqued, they employed a decoy, had a woman answer Amelia's advertisement. As per usual, a country home with two loving parents seeking an orphan. On April 3rd that same year, when the meeting was scheduled, Amelia came to her doorway expecting a new client. Instead, three detectives were standing on her doorstep. They wasted little time and promptly raided the home, finding spools of the tape she used to strangle the children, unanswered telegrams regarding adoption arrangements, pawn tickets for children's clothing and stacks and stacks of letters from mothers inquiring over the well-being of their children. During the raid, they also noticed an undeniable stench of decomposition throughout the home. Police calculated that in the previous months alone, at least 20 children had been placed in the care of Mrs. Thomas. Other evidence about the house indicated her plans to move yet again, this time to Somerset. At this rate of murder, over two to three decades, it led many to believe that she had killed over 400 babies and children. Though there was only conclusive evidence for a handful, there was little need for further investigation or witnesses. Her daughter gave graphic enough evidence to ensure her conviction. On May 22nd, with a plea for insanity, Amelia didn't have a fool's hope. It took the jury a shocking four and a half minutes to find her guilty, 
an entire life's worth of killings summarized in a blunt conclusion. When her daughter was put on trial for murder as well, her mother was at first called as a witness, but since she had already been given the death sentence, this meant she was, for all intents and purposes, legally dead. Nobody cared for the opinion of a dead person. The following month, on June 19th, James Billington's heavy boots ascended the scaffold outside Newgate Prison. In his hands was a black linen cloth bag for her head. Standing beside her, she was asked for her final words. And after speaking, I have nothing to say. The bag was placed over her head, the noose tightened, and the latch beneath her feet released. To this day, her unspeakable legend persists in a popular ballad, The Ogress of Reading. The Old Baby Farmer, the Wretched Mrs. Dyer. At the Old Bailey, her wages is paid. In times long ago, we'd a made a big fire, and roasted so nicely that wicked old jade. Thank you for returning to the theater. There's quite a bit to unpack for the story, but first, a very special announcement. The Black Carnival is a novel set in late 1800s England. Plagued by a rash of ghosts who haunt his every waking moment, forced to flee his hometown after tragic events. Atherton Graves must seek out the aid of a spiritualist who works at a very strange circus, the Black Carnival. Boasting the display of demonic beasts, performances enhanced with black magic, the carnival is as cursed as it is devious, and only fated to complicate Atherton's life further. This book will be released on Halloween of 2020. On Instagram and Twitter, Astrid Grimm is bringing the story to life, with illustrations being released every handful of days up until the release. You are invited to observe the nightmare as it unfolds, and on All Hallows' Eve, to pursue Atherton yourself through the carnival's black gates. And with that, I'm very pleased to say that this episode of Mania is sponsored by, well, just you. I'd like to honor the recent support my Patreon has received by not including any other sponsors besides the listeners who are helping bring this theater to life. Whether you're listening, spreading it around on social media, or coercing strangers at knife point, I am eternally grateful. If these stories enrich your life, and you'd like to show support, you might find yourself heading over to patreon.com forward slash harlequingrim to join my community. If you'd like to leave a one-time donation, you can go to my website, harlequingrim.com, and find support under the author tab. Now, back to the show. It would be incredibly easy to aggrandize the events of Amelia's life, but unfortunately the harrowing reality of what she's done is more than enough, so with a twinge of sadness, we're left to face the facts. The kill count, the execution, all of it. Every character, date, and setting was as transpired in history. Instead of embellishing, I actually left out quite a few details. Amelia married twice in her lifetime, with either the husband dying or her simply leaving. There was some involvement with the son-in-law as well, who helped upkeep the appearance of a loving household when guests arrived, but overall these details seemed unimportant. It's apparent to me that Amelia needed very little help in pursuing this nightmarish business model. With murderers like H.H. Holmes, one can sense how inflated estimations of his kill counts are. People often say he killed hundreds, though only a little over two dozen were confirmed, 
and the others he confessed to, which were checked to be false, seemed to imply that even he himself wanted his numbers to be higher. But with Amelia, it's just different. There is an air of absolute abandon. And seen as how it was difficult to track both the corpses of the children, as well as their ties to families who wanted nothing to do with them, it seems safe to assume the estimation of over 400 is within the realm of reason. Most shocking of all is the fact that people like Amelia were not even uncommon. The phenomena of baby farming was prevalent. The story of Amelia caused a cascade of social and political change regarding the welfare of orphans and laws which would attempt to safeguard their chance at a full life. Ironically, without her, one might wonder how many other children without these advancing laws would have been neglected over time. But I believe it's safe to say we've talked about infanticide enough for one evening. So thank you again for listening. My name is Harlequin Grimm, and as always, the theater is ever open to you.